This is uh, Dr. Jim Cox. This is February the 12th, 2024. And tonight we're looking at chapter 19 in basic Bible prophecy. And then hopefully in the second hour we'll be going on to talk about the love of God and possibly get into chapter 1 of our new book called The Basics of Bible Prophecy. So let me go back and review a little bit of what we covered last time. Just to bring us up to speed, we haven't, we haven't uh, been in the scriptures for a while since uh, because of the inclement weather. But as we got to the last section of this book, Basic Bible Prophecy, and I'm going to start reviewing in chapter 17. That was the last segment of the book. And let me read just a little bit of what he writes here uh, on page 197. Uh, this is the previous book, the one we're finishing up. He writes, uh, we have gone on quite a journey through this book. So far we examined the who, what, when, where of prophecy. We now shift our attention to the final section of the book, the, the why of Bible prophecy. More specifically, why does God give us prophecies of the end times? I believe there are three primary answers to this question. God gives us end time prophecies to motivate us to live expectantly, to motivate us to live righteously, and to motivate us to live with an eternal perspective. Each of these is important and I will devote an entire chapter in each as we explore what Scripture says about them. And so, take a look very, very briefly, because we've, we've already covered this, in chapter 17, the mo motivation to live expectantly. And by expectantly we mean that Christ can return at any time. And what's the word that we use to describe that Christ can return at any time? Eminent, right, eminent. That means there's nothing that has to happen prophetically for Christ to return. And we call it the rapture. The rapture is when Christ returns, and we, those that are, have died already, Paul says that they're asleep, the body's asleep, we know the soul goes immediately to be with, with Christ. And we know that when He returns that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up with them to meet Christ in the clouds. Oh, caught up in the clouds to meet Christ in the air. And so it says that we should be encouraged by this. It says that we will forever be with Him when that occurs. We also believe that the end of seven years, called the tribulation, this time Jesus will return as King, and King of King and Lord of Lords. And there He will judge the earth for what has happened because of man's sinfulness. Those that have trusted Christ as their Savior will be taken in the rapture. But looking at, as we have done many hours looking at the prophecies, there's nothing there. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that we will be caught up. He includes the possibility of himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 50 and 51, he says that, I tell you a mystery. He says, we will all be changed. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and at the sound of the trumpet of God. He says, when the trumpet sounds, the, the perishable be, will become imperishable. We shall all be changed. He says, we. He thought that he himself could be included in the rapture. So one thing we believe in is the imminency of Christ, that He can come at any time. The next point He makes is that we will be with Christ following the moment of death. It says that in 2 Corinthians 5 says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. I remember back when I was in high school, and we were running sprints back and forth in the, in the gym. And just as I got to the end of a sprint, I tripped over a classmate. I ran headlong into the cement wall. 
And just like that, I was out for a half hour. I was told I went into the convulsions. And when I woke up, they had called the doctor, and the doctor was standing over me. He said, if it would have went this far that way, I may not have survived it. My classmates made fun of me and called me lumpy for a while. But what I remember about that is that there was no pain. It was a transition. It was just like that. I didn't feel anything. And I think that's how it'll be when we're transformed. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, it'll be in the twinkling of an eye. Be immediately. And so, as it says here, it says, we'll be with Christ following the moment of death. Paul, in fact, said that he'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So what happens is when we die, as we talked about, our bodies are asleep. Our soul, or spirit, go to be with Christ. And in fact, he says in 2 Thessalonians 4, it tells us that Christ will bring with him those that have died or fallen asleep. What does he mean? He means that the souls and the spirit will be coming with to be joined to the physical body. He goes on then, again, I'm just giving you a quick overview here in the chapter. His next point he makes, well, he does have a, he does have a chart in here, and he says our heavenly habitat. I'm just going to skip over that, but he says we'll be resurrected with awesome bodies. And that is true. That is, when our resurrection bodies will be like Christ. They were physical. And I know there are some that believe that we'll just have a spiritual body. But Christ, when he was resurrected, had a physical body. He ate with his disciples. He told Thomas, come and put your fingers in my side and in the scar prints in my hands. He told the disciples, touch me and see that I'm flesh and bones. And yet he was able to appear through walls and disappear. Pretty spectacular. So we're going to have, as Ron Rhodes says, awesome bodies. And then it says, he writes here, the glorified body will be sturdy as a building. And yes, it'll be imperishable. It won't be perishable. It'll be powerful, it tells us. And it'll be immortal. It won't die. So, we can look with expectation, as he talks about here, expectantly, for Christ's return at any time. And when that occurs, we're going to see a resurrection and powerful bodies. And so it tells us that we will always be with the Lord when that occurs. In chapter 18, he tells us that Studying prophecy gives us a motivation to live righteously. And that's what we really see in the scriptures is that any time we see an indication that things are getting closer and closer, it's always paired with a change in behavior. And so, and I'll tell you what page we're on if you're trying to follow me here. Let me get to chapter Chapter 18, this would be, and it starts on page 203. And uh, so he cites wisdom from Paul. And Paul says in Romans, I won't read all these, but I'm just going to summarize. In Romans 13, 11 through 14, he says, For salvation is near to us now than we first believed. I mean, Christ's return is getting closer and closer and closer. And then he says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk 
properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. He cites Peter, and Peter says something very similar. He said, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. And he goes on with that. And he says, and another, that was in 1 Peter 4. In 1 Peter 3, he cites Peter. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? The expectation of the Lord's return should lead to a change in behavior. That's what they're saying here. In 1 John 2, or excuse me, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He, that is Jesus, appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Again, it should make a difference knowing that Jesus is returning. That we would want to please him. You know, when we know someone's coming over, I don't know about you, but we tend to clean up the house. We tend to get things ready. Certainly we want to give a good impression for those that are coming. The same way with us. We know our Lord is coming. We want to be ready. I think it's 1 John uh, 2, I think it's 2.20, I should look it up, but it basically it says, it says, abide in Him so that when He comes you will not need to be ashamed. And so, He's coming, that should affect us. It should change the way that we look at things. He also points out in the chapter that we should use our time wisely, making the best use of the time. He cites Ephesians 5, verses 15 16. It says, Look carefully then as you how you walk as wise men, not as unwise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So make the most of the time. Make the most of the time in terms of your relationship with Christ. Prioritize what's important in your life and do those things that would glorify Him. I think that's what he's talking about here. And so, uh, Psalm 90, 12, he cites, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. I like to say we should live intentional. Intentional living. Being deliberate. Why? We want to hear the words. Well done, good and faithful servant. We want to do that because we love them. Because we love our Savior, we want to please Him. Paul said in, Paul said in, I think it's 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 9, I believe it is. He says, whether we be in the body or out, we make it our aim to please Him. I have a new favorite verse, by the way, in John 8, 29. And he could, Jesus could see that he was going to be left alone by his disciples. They were afraid. And he says in John 8, 29, he says, And yet, I'm not alone because the Father is always with me. And he says, And I always do, those, do the things that please him. I wish we could say the same thing, right? <laughs> we would always do those things that please them. And so we see that, that it should motivate our behavior.
And so, what he does next here in the chapter, now of course he talks about maintaining Christian unity on page 208, and we'll come back to that, but he gives an example of Daniel being faithful to, to God. And so, here on page 206 in the book, he cites Daniel as an example. So, I, I created a handout, and at the top it's called, uh, let me turn over there, Lessons in Daniel. So, let me go through this, and uh, we want to look through as, as it's easy when you go through a book to skip over the references and just read the what's written by the author. But as you know, it's what's most important is to see what God's Word says. So let's take a look at some of these verses that he cites here, uh, starting on page 206. First of all, we see from uh, the life of Daniel. And remember, Daniel was uh, when the southern kingdom was taken... And Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came in. He, he came in in three invasions. The first was in 605 B.C. And he came in, and in that invasion, he did take Daniel and some of the other high-level princes in the southern kingdom. And he expected the Nebuchadnezzar deference from, from uh, the southern kingdom to pay tribute and that type of thing. Well, that didn't happen as expected. So, in 597, he comes back again. And this time, Ezekiel's taken along with about 10,000 others. So, again, he expects uh, the Babylonian king to, to have, uh, again, to, to, for the southern kingdom to pay tribute and so forth and follow. And that didn't happen. There was rebellion. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar comes back in again, and this time in 587, or excuse me, 586 B.C., he destroys Jerusalem and the temple and carries away most of the people remaining. So, during this period, it's interesting, uh, the, the different empires, that the Babylonian Empire, the kings there decided to use the people in the empire itself. And so Daniel and, his, and some of his, his friends were actually taken into the palace of the, of the king. And so Daniel rose up within the kingdom because of the abilities that God gave him to interpret dreams and to show leadership in the kingdom. But he was also obedient to his God. And because of his obedience to his God, he experienced punishment from the king. And so, when we look at the life of Daniel, and he consistently maintained his obedience to God, God blessed Daniel in spite of the environment that he was in. And so, he writes here on page 206, it says, Daniel consistently maintained obedience to God, for instance, after King Darius banned prayer to any god but himself for 30 days, Daniel's first act was to go home and pray to one true God instead of praying to Darius. For this the king had Daniel thrown into lion's dead, but God honored Daniel's act of obedience. Darius was another king after Nebuchadnezzar. Some of the blessings from obedience that he brings out in some of the verses you see them down here at the bottom of the page is Luke 11:28 says, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Also, a long life. First Kings 3.14 says, And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. That was the promise. And that was true for Daniel. He lived into old age from his obedience, at least into his 80s from what we can tell. 
And John 8, 51 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Talking about resurrection. Happiness in Psalm 112, 1, Praise the Lord, bless the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 119, 56, The blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Also experiencing peace in Proverbs 1, 33, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Also on page 207, the author lists being in well-being. Jeremiah 7, 23 says, but this commandment I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. I'm going to skip down to Deuteronomy 44.40. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And so we do see a promise of blessing when there's obedience in the scriptures. And we saw that in Daniel's life as well. As he obeyed, God would intervene to protect Daniel. Also like Joshua 1.8, he cites this verse. He says, this book, this is on page two your, of your handout, by the way, at the top. It says, This book, the law, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So we know that we see one characteristic of, of Daniel was his obedience. And as a consequence, as Ron Rhodes points out, he got blessings. He definitely had a close relationship with, with, with God, and he says happiness here, peace, well-being. And he talks about Daniel walking by faith. On page 207 he says, another trait we see in Daniel is that he always walked by faith and not by sight. And uh, so he always, regardless of the circumstance, trusted God to work out the situation that he was in. And some of the verses that are cited here, and I, I won't read them all, but I'll read a few of these. Psalm 40 verse 4 says, Bless the man who makes the Lord his trust. Do not turn to the proud those who go astray after a lie. Uh, Psalm 118.8, is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Uh, Proverbs 3.5, probably a familiar verse for a lot of us in here. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In verse 6 is acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make straight your ways. Jeremiah 17.7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Skipping down at the bottom, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And it tells us to, in, in verse 36, to endure that we might receive the, the promises that were given. So we see walking by faith and not by sight. Another characteristic of Daniel. In a good reputation... In fact, they tried to find fault with Daniel. They could not find fault. They tried to look, and he was, had a good reputation because he was always honest and always being obedient as long as he didn't violate his relationship with his God in accomplishing the task that the king had set out. 
Let me read uh, a good repetition. 1 Samuel 29, 3 says, The commanders of Philistine said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Asha said to the commanders of the Philistine, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? So another characteristic of Daniel was a good reputation. Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And Acts 17, 11 tells us, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, that is the ones in Berea. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Daniel had a stellar reputation, even among the Gentiles or the pagans there. Daniel was also a man of integrity. And Daniel 1, 7 through 9, uh, Ron Rhodes quotes here, he says, And the chief, the eunuchs, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah. He called Shadrach, Michelle, he called Meshach, Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself the king's food or with the wine that he drank before he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Therefore, he asked, I should say, the chief eunuch not to allow himself to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel 6.10 talks about when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, that is, do not bow to anyone except for the king for 30 days. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he's done previously. So he was told not to, but he did that because obedience to his God was higher than following what the king had said. And that's how they got him. Because he says they went to the king and said, look at Daniel's bowing down, praying to his God. And he's supposed to be praying, acknowledging you instead. Second Corinthians 8.21 says, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of man. On page 4 at the top, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Proverbs 28.6, Blessed a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. And so we see the character of, again, of Daniel being one of integrity. And then the characteristic of humility, Ron Rhodes points out, of, of Daniel. And he cites Daniel 2.27-28. So Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. That was his, his dream that he had. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will, will, will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And so he was to give credit to God and not himself. in humility, knowing that he was under the authority of his God. He cites John 3.30 where John the Baptist talks about Jesus and says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. True humility. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. And I'll skip down to 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in proper time he may exalt you. And so he uses Daniel's example here of living righteously, maintaining integrity, a good reputation, and being obedient to God. 
He also cites that we should maintain Christian unity as well. And uh, certainly when it comes to prophecy, we should not mm, get into arguments and create disunity by those that take a different position. We may not agree with them, but we can agree to disagree. And we'll be talking about, again, in the new book, is how do we interpret Scripture? What is the proper way of doing that? So he says the big ideas here at the end of the chapter are Bible prophecy should serve as a strong motivation. I'm reading on page 209. A strong motivation to live righteously in impurity as taught in the writings of Paul, Peter, and John. As we continue to move deeper into the last days, let us mimic Daniel in obedience to God, walking by faith, keeping a good reputation, living in integrity, and staying humble. Then he says, it's okay if some Christians disagree with us on some of the finer points of prophecy. After all, we agree on all the big stuff. And that moves us to where we left off, and that is chapter 19. That is, when we study prophecy, that should motivate us to live with an eternal perspective. So as we talk about future things, the first thing here he talks about is keeping your eyes on heaven. And he cites some verses here that helps to think about that. He cites Colossians 3, 1 and 2. In fact, he says this is some of his favorite verses. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Sometimes we get pretty comfortable here in this life, don't we? Sometimes it's so easy just to think about the things that are around us. Especially when things are going well. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see more than once where the children of Israel got satisfied. And God says, and therefore they forgot me. And we can do that day by day. We can be so into things around us and so into the things that are happening here that we forget to take an eternal perspective on to put those things in the right priority. And so Paul tells us that in Colossians 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earth. You know, some people say that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. What do you think about that? Actually, it should work the other way, right? We're so heavily minded that they're even better here on earth. You know, I was telling someone this week, uh, I, I meet with uh, a, a couple of men, and we were talking about trying to be obedient and how God works in that situation. And back when I was in college, I had a Christian professor which is unusual in the secular school. I was at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And so my professor identified himself as a Christian like I did when I was a professor in the first week of classes. And so I had a chance to go in and chat with him for a little bit and so forth. But I was aware of a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read it to you. I think I can find it here. A lot of people, I think, overlook this verse, but 
it says, I'm starting at verse 1 in chapter, uh, 1 Timothy verse, chapter 6. It says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things that you are to teach and urge on them. And so what did that tell me? It said, since I have a believing professor and I'm under that professor, I should try to do even better in that class than my other classes. And it wasn't even my major. Uh, at that time, I was majoring in management science, operations research. And this was a marketing class, of all things. And so I did that. In fact, I think I probably had the highest grade in the class. And I didn't think much of it. I was just being obedient to what God told me. And at the end of the course, he called me in his office. And he said to me, he says, Jim, he says, I want to let you know that I appreciate your effort in my class. And he says, you know, he says, I identify myself as a Christian. I've had so many Christian students slough off my classes because they think that because I'm a Christian, I'm still going to give them a grade. He says, I want you to know that I noticed your effort. Well, that's not the end of the story, by the way. Uh, it turned out that I was working on my PhD in that area, but the school had, he had left the school, my advisor, and it took them two years to hire someone in the area that I was working in. And so I got very frustrated. And Carol and I had decided that pretty close that I was going to quit and find a, a, a corporate job, an industrial job. Even though I felt that God wanted me to teach in a secular school and influence students. So I was walking through our our graduate and faculty lounge. And lo and behold, I run into my previous professor. He says, how are things going? And I said, not too well. And I says, I'm, I'm thinking about dropping out of the program. And he said, well, we'd hate to see you do that. He says, let me, let me talk to the graduate advisor in our, our area and see if we can figure something out. I said, well, okay. And I know that if I would have slept off in his class, he wouldn't have taken a personal interest. He would just said hi and bye. And long story short, um, the advisor looked at my record and he basically said, look it, we'll accept you right away in our program. He says, all you have to do is cover the marketing classes that you need to make up, but he says you've done all the basics and everything and and uh, you can do, do your thesis in our area and here I am. And God honored my obedience to the word and do you think that was just a coincidence that we crossed? I don't think that was a coincidence at all. And if we wouldn't have crossed that day, um, I probably would have went out and looked for a corporate job. And so I believe God pays attention to every detail. And he rewards being obedient. And I could go on with other stories, but that's when it made a whole difference in my career. My just following God's word and being obedient to it. Well, thanks for letting me tell you one of my stories. I have a lot of them, but that's one of them that I, is very meaningful to me, obviously. So, we have to keep our eyes with an internal perspective. Now, 
sometimes when we get those situations, we kind of feel that God is, where is he? You know, I thought I ran into a brick wall. I couldn't figure it out. I figured, God, you led me this far, and I think I want you here, but. So he wanted to teach me to be obedient, and he honored that. And I think we're the same way with, uh, when we look at an eternal perspective, we know that we have to think about what pleases him. And he, I really believe that he intervenes in situations we are obedient. And I, like I said, I could go on with other stories that are very similar to that one about obedience leading to God intervening. So, keep your eyes on heaven. It says in Philippians 3.20, he cites here, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember where our citizenship is at. Don't get too comfortable here. Think about what the future holds for you. I think earlier uh, he cited, uh, and I like this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen, ears not heard, or the mind even conceive what God has prepared for those that love him. Thinking about what it's going to be like. We can't even imagine it. John 14.2 and 3 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. He says, If it were not so, I would not have told you so. And when I come again, I will take you to myself where I am. You may be also. Luke 10.20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 1 Peter 1.4 says, An inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hebrews 11.16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We know that city will eventually be New Jerusalem. He also cites here in a table on page 213, the description of what we can look forward to. And it's a heavenly country. He cites Hebrews 11, 13 through 15, says, They all died in faith, not having received the thing promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people will speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So they were looking forward ahead to what God had promised them, as exiles on the earth. And then he talks about is a holy city full of purity without sin. I'm on page 213 in the book here. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then he calls it the home of righteousness. 2 Peter 3.13, but according to his promise we are waiting for a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then he calls it a kingdom of light where Christ the light of the world dwells. John 8.12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He also calls it the paradise of God. Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And then he calls it the eternal dwelling place. And uh, let me just quote two verses in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I like that. No pain anymore. No back pain anymore. <laughs> right, Fred? <laughs> yeah. Some of you know that I've had back pain for about 20 years. So, yeah, it's 20 year anniversary this year. 2004 and it started, but there'll be a time when there'll be no back pain, no mourning, no tears, and no death. And that's what we have to look forward to. And uh, an eternal dwelling place. And then he says, on page 213, stay aware of your mortality. Stay aware. In other words, here it's a dot, mortality, but yet we have looked forward to eternity with Christ. Psalm 90:12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 39:4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting. I am. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Comparing our mortality to what we're going to experience. And then yearning for the afterlife. 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Psalm 16.11, you have made, made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then he says, resolving to live in the light of eternal realities on page 215. He cites Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also has put eternity in man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So the emphasis there is he's put eternity into man's heart. I think most know, even though they may only look here, that there's more than just this life. They know inside there's more than just this, no matter what they say. You know, what gets me is you see atheists and they're mad at God. You're going, how can you be mad at God? You don't believe in God. How can you be mad at God? Well, it shows that's really in their heart. They know that God exists. They just don't want to acknowledge Him in their lives. And then he has some quotations here at the end of the chapter. And... Uh, let me go back to that. He has here um, on page 216, I think it is, back here. Then we'll take a break here. Yeah, he cites a lot of authors here on pages 216 and 217. I can't read all these, but let me read a few of these here. And it says, uh, it says, many who have lived before me have brought tremendous blessing uh, to me with their insights on the need to live with an eternal perspective. I think they might bless you as they have blessed me. Please allow these words to sink deep into your soul. He cites Jeremy Taylor. God hath given to man a short time here upon earth, yet upon this short time eternity depends. Time is short. Eternity is long. It is only reasonable that this short life be lived in light of eternity. Charles Spurgeon. Lord, make me know that I am so frail that I may die at any time. Early morning, noon, night, midnight, cock crow. It must be late. <laughs> I may die in any place. If I'm in the house of sin, I may die there. If I'm in the place of worship, I may die there. I may die in the street. I may die while I'm dressing tonight. I may die in my sleep. Die before I get to my work tomorrow morning. I may die in my occupation. That was Charles Spurgeon again. Look at his mortality. Let me cite just a couple more here. Uh, Silo Baxter, 
has an excellent commentary on the Bible, by the way. It says, however big and pressing the questions related to the present short life on earth may seem, they shrink into belittleness, littleness compared with this timeless, measureless concern of death in the vast hereafter. How long earthly life looks to questing youth, how quickly fled it seems to the aged. Matthew Henry said it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. And William Gurnall, let thy hope of heaven master the fear of death. Now read one last one here by J.C. Ryle. It says at the bottom of page 217, our pleasant communion with our kind Christian friends is only broken off for a small moment and is soon to be eternally resumed. These eyes of ours shall once more look upon their faces and their ears of ours shall once more hear them speak. Blessed and happy indeed will that meaning be better a thousand times than the parting. We part in sorrow and we shall meet in joy. We part in stormy weather, we shall meet in a calmer harbor. We parted amidst pains and aches and groans and infirmities and we shall meet with glorious bodies able to serve our Lord forever without distraction. Lord, may we never forget these words. Well, that ends our book, finally. I think we've been in this book for, what, two years? Something there. Someplace around there, I'm not sure. And uh, I would go back and read through it again, if I were you. And as I said, we're, we're going to go ahead and get into this book. And uh, it's written, I know we've had a couple of books by Ron Rhodes. And he actually has a, a workbook. So if the Lord tarries and we finish this, and you so desire to study more prophecy, he's got one more book yet that's a workbook that goes along that uh, there. But uh, let's take a break now. And as I, as I mentioned before, uh, I'd like to talk about God's love. And let me give you another time period to look at this book before we get started. And I'll give a little introduction to this before we end tonight. But let's go ahead and take a little break right now for about until uh, about 20 of. If you want to stretch your legs and so forth, and we'll get started again. And I'll go ahead and pass out the handout that would be for this, the second hour here in just a moment. Okay? <laughs>